It's Tuesday, April 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Researchers are looking into how an immune system gone haywire may be doing the most damage in patients experiencing some of the most severe symptoms and even death because of COVID-19. This might be happening in two stages. First, the immune system fails to respond quickly enough to the virus, then responds too aggressively and causes more damage. Joe Walker, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for why a hyperactive immune response may be making things worse. Next, last week we heard about Nadia, a tiger in the Bronx Zoo that had contracted COVID-19. The tiger and a few other big cats had come down with dry coughs, so the decision was made to test, and it was a test made specifically for the animals. It's important to understand how the transmission works. For example, can it spread to other animals or even pets? Kate Nibbs, writer at Wired, joins us for more. Finally, as we track and map out the spread of coronavirus, we're learning that most of the cases in New York actually came from Europe and not China. Early travel restrictions from those coming from China were put in place, but the virus had already spread, making it much more difficult to contain. Carl Zimmer, columnist at the New York Times, joins us for how coronavirus came to New York. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Then you get this wave of what is called a cytokine storm, which is a, an entire cascade of inflammatory factors that are designed to have a, a, a much larger amplitude immune response targeted at this particular virus. Joining us now is Joe Walker, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Joe. My pleasure. We're continuing to learn more about the coronavirus and COVID-19. One of the things that everybody's concerned with is obviously why some people get these very severe symptoms from the virus and why some people die from it. For a long time, we've been saying people with underlying health conditions are more at risk. You know, it just seems to kind of create this perfect storm. But also included in all this is the immune response for every person. And that could be different due to genetics and other reasons. But an immune system that goes haywire could be eyed in why some people are dying from the coronavirus. Joe, tell us a little bit about this. The idea here, right, is that COVID-19 is flu-like symptoms that are really, really bad. We all know them, right? Like headache, coughing, fatigue, all this kind of stuff, right? Pneumonia, really terrible symptoms. But, but most people get over those symptoms. You know, their immune system does the job for them. And then you have this like maybe 15 to 20% of people who end up on ventilators and some of them die. And people increasingly think that what's happening there is that it's not so much the virus anymore. It's the person's own body and their own immune response is just going haywire. It's overreacting. Essentially, it's doing too much too fast. And what it's doing is basically creating this mechanism whereby fluids seep into the lungs and fill them up like balloons. And you end up in a situation called acute respiratory distress syndrome, which basically means you can't breathe, your organs can't get oxygen, and barring intervention, you die from respiratory failure. And doctors think that there's two stages to this, two steps. So the first is the lag. Your immune system is kind of lagging in attacking it. And then once it sees that it's there, then it goes and overcompensates. And then this is the part where it can become a problem, where your immune system is going overboard and it's actually destroying healthy cells in addition to trying to fight the virus. 
Exactly. One, the way one researcher pointed it out to me was like, if you have a riot in the streets, you know, and you send your local police there, but it's just way too much. The riot's way out of control. And so then you send in the riot police. But like at that point, everything is just chaos and it's just a mess because you didn't send in the right authority or the right police force soon enough. And so then everything just kind of is mayhem. So the way that you described it in this sort of two-stage process does seem to be what happens to a portion of patients that end up getting really sick and some of them die. And this whole moment of chaos in the body with the immune system, doctors and scientists, they call it a cytokine storm. So it's kind of this perfect storm of chaos going on in the body. And they're eyeing certain drugs. I don't know if they're full on immunosuppressants or certain things that can target these things to maybe help calm that part down in an effort to not have the body go haywire that way. So cytokines are these proteins that your immune system uses to fight off infections to help keep you healthy when you're sick, right? There's a bunch of different ones, and usually they're good things, right? But when the immune system kind of goes crazy like this, it's putting way too many of those cytokines into your body all at once, and that's what's sort of causing the problems. And so there are a number of drugs that people are testing right now. I'd say the most advanced are these two medicines that are both approved. One is called Actemra and the other one is called Kevzara. They're both on the market for other conditions. But they block this one kind of cytokine in particular called IL-6. And so the hope is that if you can block this one cytokine that looks like it's playing a role in these negative effects you're having, that it could kind of quiet this storm and help take all this pressure off the body so that it can actually fight the virus again. You know, and we write in the article about some pretty encouraging anecdotal results about people being treated with these drugs and having really good results. And we have to be very clear on this. There's a lot of talk about different drugs going on. Hydroxychloroquine is one that the president likes to talk about. People have hit or miss evidence with it. That's something more that people are saying, take it beforehand or early on when you get COVID-19. For people that have really, really bad symptoms, these are for people where the body is actually starting to do harm to itself. So it's kind of on a different spectrum. I think that's right because, you know, look, all drugs have side effects and you never know exactly how bad each person's side effects will be. So it's like not the kind of thing you really just want to like fool around with and take for giggles. And so with these drugs we're talking about that target the immune system in particular, um, you want to be really careful. I will just say though that one of the tricky things about this disease is that the cytokine storm process seems to happen really quickly. So it's not as though you're totally healthy one day and then on a ventilator the next, but it can be like you're pretty sick, you're pretty sick, and then all of a sudden you're kind of having trouble breathing. And that's really when I think doctors are saying that they think these types of drugs might be most beneficial. So you really want to try to catch it at the right time, even while being careful about not kind of giving them out willy-nilly to everybody. Joe Walker, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. To do the test, it's similar to how people get tested, but of course, Nadia was under general anesthesia, and we obtained swabs from her nose, the back of her throat, and fluid from her lungs, and all of those samples were sent to the veterinary labs for testing. Joining us now is Kate Nibbs, writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about a story that came up last week about Nadia the tiger in the Bronx Zoo. She tested positive for COVID-19 
this was the first case that we had in the United States of an animal coming down with it. So uh, it made a lot of news. And we want to talk a little bit more about the whole process, what happened, how the tiger was tested, and more importantly, the correlation between humans and animals and, and getting this disease as well. So Kate, start us off. What happened with Nadia? It was, only, it was Nadia and a few other big cats there at the Bronx Zoo that had these dry cough symptoms. Yes. So seven big cats altogether exhibited symptoms, but only Nadia was tested because she seemed the sickest for the longest time. So the Bronx Zoo closed to the public in mid-March, but zookeepers stayed on to care for the animals. And they noticed that Nadia was coughing and the other cats were coughing. And it went on for long enough that they decided to just run a series of tests on her. They did not initially suspect COVID-19 just because no animal in North America had had come down with it yet. So it seemed kind of far-fetched. So they sedated her and the veterinarians at the zoo ran a series of tests for more common conditions and they all came back negative. So they took a sample, a few different samples from Nadia while she was out. In the same way that when you get a, a COVID test as a human, they put a swab in your nostril. They did that to Nadia. And they also took some um, samples from her throat. And they sent those samples to two different diagnostic labs, one at the University of Illinois and one at Cornell University. And those universities developed their own tests specifically for animals, and they ran them. Both had presumed positives, so then they sent those samples to the Federal Veterinary Diagnostic Lab in Iowa. They ran a test. It also came back positive. So that's when they sort of came out and said, look, it, you know, it certainly seems as though Nadia has this condition and we're going to continue studying it because it's quite unusual for a cat to get this type of coronavirus. And it just speaks to how unpredictable this type of coronavirus is. And the working theory is that a zoo worker there was either asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic, something like that. And that's how Nadia and some of these other big cats might have gotten it. And you made the important point there that they specifically designed this test for the animals. This wasn't a test that a person lost out on, basically. And that was an important thing. But that's also very important, too, because the other working theory, obviously, is that the virus came from bats to humans. And now mm -hmm. if we're transmitting it back to other animals, you know, there's big questions. What about other animals? What about our pets? So it's important to understand how this uh, human to cat transmission happened. Yes, it's very important. And, you know, when I first heard the news, I was a little put off because I'm living in New York and many people I know, including a member of my own family, have exhibited signs of COVID-19 and haven't been able to get a test. So I think it's normal to be a little bit confused about how a tiger got the test before so many humans did. But, uh, you know, the veterinary diagnosticians who created this test, it's not like they would be creating a test for humans anyways. You know, they specialize in animal medicine. So this is a, a parallel but still important area of research right. regarding the disease. Yeah, it's not like a car manufacturer that can switch over to making ventilators. It doesn't work that way. These people are not licensed to test humans or anything. So, you know, they, that would never happen. But we do have some tests that have been done. There's other animals that have tested positive for this. Yes. So several cats have appear to have tested positive. I believe one in Hong Kong and one in Belgium. And then in Hong Kong, dogs have appeared to test positive as well. 
And then there have been some experiments in, in laboratories where cats, ferrets, and golden hamsters have been deliberately exposed to COVID-19 because they are studying how those species react. And it does appear that they can catch it. But so far, this tiger is the only animal in North America that we know of who has appears to have caught COVID-19 from a human. And there are only a handful of cases worldwide where that looks to be the case. So it doesn't seem like something that's super easily transmittable to household pets, including cats, because at this point, you know, almost 2 million people have been confirmed with COVID and barely any pets have been brought in with, with concerns about this. So just if you, if people have cats, it shouldn't be something that you're really stressing over because it does not appear to be something that they're at great risk for contracting. And they don't, they also don't appear to be getting this sick. No animal has, has died of this that we know of. And what do we know about Nadia and the other big cats there at the Bronx Zoo? Uh, they are recovering, it seems like? Yes. So the veterinarian at the zoo said they are all recovering and they are expected to make full recovery. So none of them had to go on ventilators. None of them had severe cases and they appear to be on their on the road back to health. Kate Nibbs, writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You have a virus that's in a wild animal, in this case, uh, Chinese horseshoe bats. And, you know, the animal is basically okay with it. And then somehow it comes into contact with humans and the particular virus strain happens to be pretty good at living inside of humans instead of bats. And then it just takes hold. Joining us now is Carl Zimmer, columnist for The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Carl. Thanks for having me. There's some new research that suggests that the coronavirus that began to circulate in the New York area by mid-February actually came from travelers mainly from Europe, not Asia. These stories about the spread and how this was moving across the country. So a team of scientists got together and were studying the genome and the mutations in the virus. And this is how they were able to figure out that travelers from Europe are bringing it to the United States. And obviously, we know when this first started, the president had closed off travel to people from China, but this is not where it was exactly coming from. Carl, tell us a little bit more about this. One way that you can study the spread of a virus is to look at where confirmed cases are popping up, but really that only tells you where somebody has gotten sick enough to be noticed and to be tested to see if they actually have viruses inside of them. And we know that we've missed lots and lots of cases. So what some scientists have done is they've said, okay, let's use the viruses themselves as like a history book, because when viruses copy themselves, they mutate sometimes. So if a virus in England ends up in the United States because they flew over here, you can actually figure out that it started off in a population in England if you have some samples there. And so now scientists have been looking at viruses around New York City trying to make sense of this terrible, terrible outbreak that's seizing the city. And they're getting some pretty striking results. One of which you mentioned is that the vast majority of the viruses in circulation now, you can trace back to Europe, not to Asia. So let's start from the beginning, how they are tracking these viral mutations. And the first thing we can do is debunk one of these conspiracy theories that the SARS-CoV-2, the virus that 
gives people COVID-19, that it came from a lab and was leaked out and something like that. They were actually able to track the genome of the virus and make a clear distinction that it arose in bats. The wilder conspiracy theories that you see will claim that this was actually a bioweapon, that somehow people created this and then it got out of a lab or something like that. And the real story that is recorded in the genomes of these viruses is a lot more of a familiar story. We've seen this with SARS. We've seen this with MERS. We've seen it with Ebola. We've seen it with HIV. You have a virus that's in a wild animal, in this case, uh, Chinese horseshoe bats, and the animal is basically okay with it. And then somehow it comes into contact with humans and the particular virus strain happens to be pretty good at living inside of humans instead of bats, and then it just takes hold. The closest virus in bats to SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, is in a Chinese horseshoe bat, but it's pretty far from Wuhan, and also it's somewhat different, which means that maybe it split off from the ancestor of SARS-CoV-2 maybe 40, 50 years ago. And when did it make its way to New York? Really what this kind of tells us is there's just this big period of untracked global transmission between late January, mid-February and all that, and leading into these first cases that we started seeing in New York. This virus spilled over, as scientists say, into humans in China in late 2019. And it was starting to move into other parts of the world no later than January. So then there were a few cases that were starting to pop up in late January, like in Washington State, for example. But these were cases in the United States where you could say like, okay, this person traveled here, we're isolating them, and they didn't seem to be leading to any community spread. And in New York, we saw a couple of cases like this in February, but it seemed like just a couple of people who were sick and had just sort of gotten off a plane. The fact is, we know now from these genomes that at least as early as mid-February, maybe even a little bit earlier, people were flying mainly from Europe infected with the virus, didn't know it, weren't stopped, weren't tested, and then went about their business. They may have developed mild symptoms or none at all, and they infected other people. And we're dealing now with those consequences. We're talking about tracking the viral mutations. Some experts caution, though, not to read too much into these mutations themselves. COVID-19 for itself has a relatively slow mutation rate. This is just the way the process that they're using to track it. It's not like it's mutating into something much worse. Although, you know, they say the virus could be seasonal, so who knows what it would look like in the future. But this is just on the tracking front right now. So viruses all mutate, and most of those mutations are either harmful to the virus itself or have no effect one or the other. So when you hear about a mutation in a virus, that shouldn't immediately make you think like, oh my gosh, this is a deadly mutant that's going to kill us all. The thing is that as far as scientists can tell, looking at the mutations that are in SARS-CoV-2 right now in the different populations, it's not like evolving into a particularly different form. In fact, it's, it seems to be mutating fairly slowly. So there are slight differences between the viruses in New York and Italy and so on, but they're all pretty much the same, which is great in the sense that that makes making a vaccine a lot easier because a vaccine should be able to handle them all. Some viruses, you actually have to make a vaccine that's like three or more vaccines in one because you're trying to hit all the different strains. That doesn't seem to be the case here. Carl Zimmer, columnist for The New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.